Part Four, Chapter Two of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Four, Chapter Two. Next morning he left the apartment before either David or Derry, who had come in late, were up. There were three things to be done, and then he knew he must go home. Home for the summer with his father and mother and Barton. Save for leaving David, the prospect was not unpleasant. They wanted him there, and it was only fair that he should go. But first he must see Tony, and have lunch with Chloe, and visit Korlov at the conservatory to discuss prospects for the fall. He dared not count too much on the Duchess. He breakfasted in Times Square, more raw and blatant than he had remembered it, and walked on to the fifties. Tony wasn't up, but he finally came to the door, looking tousled and theatrical, in orchid crepe pajamas. Good God, Kurt, don't you know we professional people are never at our best at this hour? Come in and park yourself on the bed. How are you? And how are your sexual problems? Kurt grinned and tossed a blanket at him. I'm interested in the Duchess, he said. And not in me. Oh, well. And sighed dramatically. Our damn Duchess is still with braining. He won't say yes and he won't say no, but he hangs on to the script as if it was the last button on his braces. And in the meantime, what is the most vital juvenile of the American stage doing? He is living on charity. You'll take me to lunch, of course. I will not, said Kurt. I'm dining with a lady. And I can't go along? No, you can't. You remember your instructions, don't you? You don't want to queer my cure, do you? No, oh no, of course not. In which case I'm going back to bed. Let me know where you're going to be, and I'll wire you the fate of the Duchess. I'm glad we didn't leave her in Siente in the last act. She'd have had a family by now and he crawled back into bed. Kurt, laughing, started to leave when Tony called after him. Oh, Kurt, see here. Is there anything really, a uh, potential in this luncheon date of yours? Come with me if there isn't. I'd like to have you meet my Joda. She'd do you good. You still have your Joda, do you? Oh, my, yes. He was exaggeratedly emphatic. We still have our Joda, all of us. We call her the little mother of Yale. She'd be very friendly, Kurt. I don't think she's had a composer. We'll let Joda go till later. He laughed over his shoulder and went out, looking at his watch. There was still plenty of time to visit the conservatory before lunch. He hailed a taxi and found Korlov engaged with the student. He sat in the corridor with the familiar, insanely mingling and dissonant sounds beating and snarling about him. At last Korlov's door opened and the departing student came out, looking very warm and tired, and Kurt saw the broad back of Korlov, arranging sheets of music on the piano top. He knocked and went in. Korlov turned, and, recognizing him, greeted him enthusiastically. "'Court Gray!' he exclaimed, and put his hands on Kurt's shoulders. "'How glad I am to see you! Just back from Paris, eh? I trust you have not been bitten by the bug.' Ach, that poser! Arik, Kasala! Madmen, that's what they are! Madmen! Kurt smiled as Korlov fumed. You are laughing at old Korlov, eh? Ah, well. 
He shrugged his heavy shoulders with mock resignation. He fingered the music on the piano, while Kurt told him of Paris and Fontainebleau, and concerts and Philippe. And what did Monsieur Philippe say about your playing? Just what you said, sir, that I'd never be a great performer, too impatient of routine. And you were sad, then? Kurt smiled at the old man's quaint phrasing. No, I was not sad. Good, said Korloff. You should not be. You can be a good composer, and God knows we have enough piano players already. What are you going to do? I'm going home for a while, to Michigan. Have to find something in the fall. How would you like to teach? What? And where? asked Kurt. We have a request, said Korloff confidentially, as if there might be spies at every window. We have a request for a teacher at Brookway School. You know that school? Yes, I've heard of it. New, isn't it? And in Connecticut. And disgustingly wealthy. Yeah, oh, so wealthy. He lifted up his eyes, and his hands expressed his incredulity at such lavishness. A Mr. Brook gave how many millions I do not know two years ago. The buildings have been all finished now, and they will be open in September with about fifty students. Boys? Yeah, boys. Up to college age. You would have their charge of all the music, teach harmony, and do, so they tell me anyway, about what you like. No discipline. One of these modern schools. Not like my old gymnasium. It doesn't sound so bad, said Kurt. No, for you it sounds good. To me, good. You would be free much of the time, and quiet for your writing, eh? It's not a highly academic sort of place, I take it. No. Korloff stroked his jowl thoughtfully with the backs of his fingers. When do you go home? he asked. I was going tomorrow, but should I do anything definite about this place? Now? Stay over one day, and tomorrow after lunch I take my car and we drive to this Brookway school, and you can see then yourself. Kurt agreed and departed, hurrying to the nearest subway station to take a train downtown. He arrived at the shop just at noon. As he climbed the dark flight of stairs, two girls descending eyed him curiously. He found Chloe scrubbing a recalcitrant spot of paint from her finger. Take a look in the shop while I get organized, Kurt, she said. He went through the door to which her dripping hand pointed. It was a large, high-ceilinged room, light in spite of the grime that crusted the windows. At the far end was a small but well-equipped carpenter shop. The rest of the room was filled with tables piled with wooden novelties, some ready to be assembled, some complete and ready for paint, others drying, some piled on shelves ready to be wrapped and boxed. The whole place smelled of shaving and paint and oil and turpentine. "'Why don't you wash your windows?' Kurt called. "'We did try it,' Chloe's voice came to him, punctuated, with gurglings of the drain, splashings and blowings. "'But it was so ugly outside we were glad when they got dirty again. Come on, I'm ready.' She took Kurt's arm, and they were on their way. "'If you don't mind, let's go to a Chinese place near here.' It's not much to look at, but the food's good, and it's cheap, and I daren't take more than an hour. Getting off to see you arrive yesterday forenoon was just about all I dared attempt for a while. And about all I'm worth, too. Chloe laughed and squeezed his arm. When had he walked like this with a girl? Not since, a year ago, the two of them, in so strange a tangle of moods, had plotted the paths of Central Park, in a darkness more than physical. But this was not the same girl, 
He told her so. Of course I'm changed, she said. You think I'm harder. Well, perhaps I am. One has to be, living here. The year has been happy? It's been hell. They turned into the restaurant and ordered lunch. One can't be happy when the thing she wants most she knows she can't have, can she? Kurt, embarrassed, avoided her eyes. Still the same then, underneath, still wanting his love. He was irritated and flattered at the same time. The situation, to the average fellow, would have seemed so simple. Yet to him it was complex and impossible of solution. She wanted him. There would be no scruples, no evasions. Yet the thought of physical union with her, with any woman, was a devastating fear. You don't like David much, do you? he asked, not knowing why he asked, sorry as soon as the question was out. I despise David. He's ineffectual and weak. The very words of her letter, Kurt remembered. But it's not that alone. It's something deeper, a thing I can't explain. I dislike him as I dislike worms and spiders. Oh, Kurt! She leaned across the table toward him. I've been so frightened at all this, so frightened. Derry's made such a fool of himself. Don't you. Don't let yourself. It's all wrong, this thing you're caught in, you three. And you can't see it. You're not different. You just think you are. And you mix everything all up and make the normal thing so difficult. Kurt was flushed and silent. How could he argue this thing with a girl like Chloe? Didn't she suppose he had gone over it all a hundred bitter times? Couldn't she see the difference between perversion as a pose, a languid espousement of perfumed decadence, and perversion, how he loathed the word, that was deep in the core of you, flooding your veins and arteries, making normality unnatural and the natural abnormal? Kurt, I'm sorry. I don't know whether you're right or whether you're wrong, but I know this, if you ever want... Oh, what's the use? She hid her head in the crook of her arm, her hand clenching her shoulder, and Kurt feared for a moment she was crying. Then she raised it and smiled wanly. The tea's good, don't you think? He was sorry for her. Pity swept him, and sent his hand impulsively across the table to lie for an instant on her own. See here, Chloe, don't let it all upset you. I don't know, maybe, but just believe I'm trying to find out. It's all so uncertain, so at odds with the everyday. Kurt, Kurt, dear, her voice was soft but insistent. Let's say no more about it. I'll help if I can, and that's all the right I have to mix in it at all. Let's have some rice cakes, with fortunes, and then I'll have to get back to the paint pots. End of Part 4, Chapter 2